This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. One of the Danesburg family traditions is pizza movie night, mostly held on Friday evenings. And uh, each week, a member of our family gets to choose the movie for the night while we stuff our faces full of pizza and a small side of some fruit or vegetable to cleanse dad and mom's dietary and parenting conscience. (laughs) Around the Christmas season, we shift to Christmas movies. I'm sure many of you do as well. Even Christmas movies have a villain. Christmas Carol has Ebenezer Scrooge. It's a Wonderful Life as Mr. Potter. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas has, well, the Grinch elf. Well, pretty much the whole world is against Buddy. That uh, incredible work of Christmas science fiction portraying the death-defying superhuman powers of two bumbling burglars, Home Alone, has Harry and Marv, the ultimate Christmas villains. Even Hallmark Christmas movies has a guy trying to wreck Christmas. Usually he's a heartless developer ready to bulldoze the family Christmas store slash bakery slash toy store who's only thwarted when the hunky barista comes to the rescue. The original Christmas story has its own monster, though his cruelties are far from cute. Herod is the ultimate villain which is why he's not portrayed in too many Christmas stories. You remember how he fits into the drama? The wise men, the magi from the Far East, saw and followed a star leading them to Jerusalem. Upon arriving, they begin inquiring of the locals where this new king can be found. This was not good news to Herod's ears, and it wasn't good news for everyone else either, because they knew the kind of man he was. Herod had developed a reputation for being an astonishingly violent man. When he came to power, the first thing he did was slaughter everyone associated with the former dynasty. At one point in his life, he executed half the Sanhedrin, which at the time contained 70 Jewish elders. On another occasion, he had Mary Amni, his own wife, killed, along with his mother-in-law, Alexandra, and three of his sons. So when Herod hears from these visitors from the east that a new king has arrived on the scene, he responds with all the ferocity you can imagine consistent with his reputation. Herod has all the boys two years of age and under killed in the tiny village of Bethlehem. After recording that tragic event, Matthew writes this, And what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew quotes this Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 31, 15. And this is all we're going to ponder today. And I think you'll find this to be helpful even a balm to your soul, because in many ways, the year 2020 has been a villain. 
We're going to look at the untold story of Christmas, the unexpressed emotion of Christmas, and the future-looking hope of Christmas. First, the untold story of Christmas. After we read about Herod's slaughter of the innocents, we're given this passage from Jeremiah 31.15. And the question, obviously, is why would Matthew insert this verse right after recording Herod's heinous crime? Well, let's ask three questions about this verse, this Old Testament verse. What is Rama? Who is Rachel? And why is she weeping? First, what is Rama? Rama was a city in the southern kingdom of Judah, just five miles from Jerusalem. Other than Jerusalem, it was an important city for God's people in the southern kingdom. It was the birthplace of Samuel, who was the priest who anointed both Saul and David. It was also the burial site of Rachel. So Rama could be associated with Judah as a whole, the place of God's people. Who is Rachel? Rachel was one of Jacob's wives. You'll recall that after engaging in this wrestling match with God, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So before Israel becomes a nation, it's first an individual, a person, a man. Jacob married Rachel, and Rachel became known as the idealized mother of the Jewish people. So even though Rachel wasn't alive when Jeremiah wrote this, she's the mother of all Israel and is weeping. Why is she weeping? She's weeping because in Jeremiah 31, God has told his people they will be carried off into exile by the, by the Babylonians. This happened in waves, but the climactic event took place in 586 BC when Babylon finally invaded and sacked Jerusalem, hauling many of the Israelites back to Babylon as exiles. Rachel is weeping because she's mourning the loss of her children, Israel. So Matthew recites this verse as a way of saying the slaughtering of these boys by Herod is yet another example of how God's people are in exile. Bethlehem weeps over the loss of their children. And this is part of the Christmas story. The untold story of Christmas. Christmas, and every time it comes up for us, is a reminder of our exile. What is exile? We don't know what it's like to have a foreign power invade our land and transport us to their country to live and work as they see fit. But we do experience exile. Think for a moment about the concept of home. Now, home conjures up a variety of emotions. In a basic sense, we use the word to refer to the place where we live. In other contexts, it's the place where we grew up or the place where our family lives. But we can also use the term in another sense. Home is where a person feels a sense of belonging and identity. It's, it's where we feel most comfortable and free to be ourselves. It's where we let down our guard and relax. Yet there are people in this world that for various reasons are unable to live in the place they call home. For some, that's a voluntary choice. Many college students are not able to live in the place where they call home because they have left home to go to school. Some people travel quite often for work, spending days, weeks, even months away from home to earn a living. For others, the reason is involuntary. Obvious examples are the criminal who's confined to prison 
or the child who's been told by their parents that they're no longer welcome in their home. Regardless of whether this is voluntary or involuntary, living in a place that is not our home is a disorienting experience. There's a word for that. There's a word for living in a place that is not our home. It's exile. And exile isn't just confined to where one lives. Even when living in your homeland, you can feel a sense of exile as your beliefs conflict with the dominant culture. So exile is a real experience of estrangement, displacement. And it can be felt geographically. It can be felt physically or spiritually. Exile is the sense that we've been separated from what's normal. In a big way, the year 2020 has been a year of exile. It feels like we've been displaced from what's normal. We're feeling acutely that things are off. I've come across numerous images depicting just how abnormal 2020 has been. The graphic reminders of the fact that we're not home. I think you'll find some of these to be a bit amusing. For instance, if 2020 was toilet paper, here's what it would look like. If 2020 was a swing. If 2020 was a slide. How about if 2020 was a car? I stared at that one for about five minutes to try to figure it out. If 2020 was a hula hoop, what if 2020 was a pinata? And my personal favorite, if 2020 was a scented candle. The sense of living in a place that's not our home finds expression throughout literature and culture. A lighthearted example of this is one of my favorite movies, The Terminal, starring Tom Hanks. Hanks plays Victor Navorsky, a man from the fictional Eastern European nation of Krakosia. Upon arriving at JFK Airport in New York City, Navorsky discovers that a coup has taken place in his homeland and the United States refuses to recognize the new regime. And as a result... Navorsky is denied entry into America and is forced to remain in the international transit area. The rest of the movie, all of it, recounts Navorsky's adventures as a man without a country living in an airport. The Christmas story is the untold story of exile. And 2020 has reinforced that. We are exiles. Don't believe the arguments out there that the way we've had to change our behaviors over the last nine months are normal. There's nothing normal about any of that. But your life in February wasn't normal either. We're exiles. Just like the people of Bethlehem, we've been estranged from the way life is supposed to be. This is the untold story of Christmas. Second, the unexpressed emotion of Christmas. 
You see it there in the verse, weeping, mourning, refusing to be comforted. Isn't it striking that God would choose to demonstrate so clearly to us that Christmas isn't a season filled with 100% warm fuzzies? Pop culture, modern culture teaches us Christmas is supposed to be chestnuts roasting on an open fire and Jack Frost nipping at your nose. It's supposed to be dreaming of a white Christmas. It's supposed to be wrapped in a blanket next to the fire. Sipping cocoa while the hunky barista saves the day on the Hallmark Channel. All of that beautiful white snow gently cascading to the ground. Illuminated by Christmas lights. Welcomed by smiling faces. Creates the sense there's only one way to feel about Christmas. There should be an indescribable warmth and joy. I want you to hear something. If you don't feel that way, there's nothing wrong with you. So much pressure is applied to us to feel the Christmas spirit. That when we don't feel that way, we think there must be something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with you. One of the reasons God includes a monstrous villain in the Christmas story is to remind us that Christmas didn't make everything better. The arrival of Jesus intensified the war, and it reminds us we're still exiles. And in so doing, shows us our response doesn't have to be all sunshine and roses and puppy dog tails. It's okay to cry at Christmas. It's okay not to feel the Christmas spirit. It's okay not to be overjoyed at this holiday. Remove the pressure you place in yourself to put on a happy face. Join the people of Bethlehem and weep, mourn. Christmas doesn't magically make everything better. But I don't want to leave the unexpressed emotion of Christmas there. Let's not leave it there. The purpose of weeping over our exile at Christmas isn't only to weep. God is still up to something. And if at Christmas of 2020, you can relate to the people of Bethlehem in some way. Remember, God isn't wasting this year's Christmas. The Puritans were among the best doctors of the soul ever to live. One such Puritan, Richard Baxter, wrote this. He said, Suffering so unbolts the door of the heart that the word has easier entrance. Suffering so unbolts the door of the heart that the word has easier entrance. Similarly, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. As biblical license is given to weep and to mourn at Christmas, of all days, open your heart to God. He's up to something. He's speaking. Will you listen? 
Third, the transcendent hope of Christmas. Now, we know the Christmas story doesn't end at Christmas. In many ways, Christmas is just the beginning. Matthew's use of Jeremiah 31.15 indicates that. One of the important things to remember when you're reading your Bible is that when a New Testament writer quotes or alludes to an Old Testament passage, it's important to go back to the original passage and study the context of that passage. Jeremiah 31.15 is in the context of two chapters that look forward to the return of the exiles to their homeland. I want to read the four verses that immediately precede the one we've been thinking about. And you tell me the tenor of those verses. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. The young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. You tell me, what is the tenor of that? Yeah, the exile is now, but the future is bright. The weeping is now, but a party awaits. The morning is now, but because of Christmas, this is as bad as it's going to get. The indescribably best is yet to come. 2020 has been a year in which we have felt our exile. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We've been separated from what we believe is normal. It's not home. Well, we're not the first ones to experience Christmas this way. The families of Bethlehem knew this better than we do as they grieved the loss of their boys. So on the one hand, Matthew steers us away from an overly optimistic, Pollyanna-ish disposition towards Christmas. You may not feel like singing Deck the Halls of Boughs of Holly, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. On the other hand, Matthew steers us away from despair that sees only violence and horror. In Jesus, we see both the crying of Rachel for her children and the promise that those tears are going to be wiped away in a new and lasting kingdom of God. Now, you might hear all this and think, well, that's encouraging. But does this mean I have to wait till I die or Jesus comes back to rejoice in the bounty of the Lord? Do I have to wait until the end to dance and be glad? No. Look at how Matthew punctuates this hope. Chapter 2, verse 19. Four words. But when Herod died. For the families of Bethlehem and all Israel... Herod was the temporary reason for their exile. And while his death didn't bring back their boys, Matthew did want to draw our attention to his ultimate demise. Why? 
Because in Herod's death, God's people experienced some relief from their exile. In His grace and abundance and goodness, God gives us little foretastes of His bounty to come. And in the year to come, I am confident you will experience little tastes of His bounty. I'm confident we will experience miniature releases from exile. Lewis again says it well. He says, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. And the theme that comes bounding at us is hope. The Lord has some ends for us in the year to come. He does. But He won't allow us to mistake those for home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this untold story of Christmas. It gets so little attention. It conflicts with what we've been told is how we should feel about this time of year. Lord, we thank You for it. For in it we see that surrounding the rival of Your glorious Son, there is weeping. There is mourning. And Lord, I pray that you would allow your people to be emotionally honest. That we wouldn't kowtow to the pressure of society. But we would allow the scriptures to shape the way we approach this. At the same time, God, we know that the things that cause us to feel most acutely are exile are driving us to the manger to look upon the face of the one who is our eternal hope. So I pray that we would take a look again and we get a fresh glimpse of this baby who is to be our Savior. And that we would allow that glimpse to drive us to our eternal future. One where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For one day those things will be done with. We praise you and we lift high the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.